Welcome back to GWK the podcast. I'm your host, David Dodge, and the executive editor of Gays with Kids. And today on the pod, I'm excited to be talking with Chris Bright, who is the director of public training at the Trevor Project, an organization that needs no introduction. But in case you haven't heard of them, they were founded in 1998 and they focus on suicide prevention among LGBTQ youth. And today they're the world's largest suicide prevention and crisis intervention organization for LGBTQ youth. So I was in high school when the Trevor Project was founded. And as I discussed with Chris, the world looks pretty different to me uh, today than it did then as a queer person. At the time, you'd be hard pressed to find queer representation in our culture beyond a few brave souls who dared come out and whose careers were often tanked as a result. We couldn't marry at the time or adopt in much of the United States as queer people. We faced violence, we faced overt legal discrimination in our jobs, schools and doctor's offices and many other sectors of society. Now, I was fortunate to have a very accepting family while I was coming out, uh, but the process was still difficult for me. And like many young queer people at the time, I, I struggled with my mental health and I attribute it to many of these societal pressures and factors. So here we are more than 20 years later, and so much of that reality is different now. Queer people are downright at the center of culture these days. And to be fair, we were always there. We can just now be there a bit more openly. Um, but public opinion on some queer rights issues has also changed dramatically. When the Trevor Project was founded in 1998, for instance, a bit more than 30% of the country supported same-sex marriage. Today, that number is at 70%. Thanks to some major organizing efforts, we now have workplace protection. We have the right to marry. We can adopt anywhere in the country. Something that hasn't improved in the same time frame, though, is suicide uh, and mental health issues among LGBTQ people and young people in particular. From 1998 to 2018, suicide rates among LGBTQ youth increased by 30%. The Trevor Project estimates that there is one suicide attempt by a, an LGBTQ young person every 45 seconds in the country. And the reasons for this are varied, but it's because young people today, even in 2022, continue to be rejected by family, they continue to face discrimination despite any laws we might have passed. Uh, if you are trans or non-binary, you can't turn on the TV or read the newspaper without seeing your identity used as a political ping pong ball. So things might look different today and they might have improved in some ways, uh, but in others they have not and young queer people are still struggling. So as queer parents, these statistics are relevant to us for any number of reasons. First, we should just care because <laughs> they're very troubling. Um, but we also used to be these young people. Many of us struggled with these same problems and thoughts, and many in our community still do. So it's fitting that this pod is following last week's pod with uh, Corey George, who, if you listened, you know, is a trauma specialist who um, spoke with us about the trauma that many of us experience as young people and even as adults that sticks with us, even if we've mostly recovered from it and moved on, uh, it still lives on in our lives and manifests in interesting ways. Uh, so if you haven't listened to that podcast, I, I definitely uh, recommend it, give it a listen. But second, Many of us are raising these young LGBTQ people today who embody what these statistics represent. They are kids struggling with their mental health. Foster care is one of the main paths available to us to become dads and uh, kids in foster care disproportionately identify as LGBTQ. We have an amazing story actually this week on our website, gayswithkids.com, where we explore the important history of gay dads raising LGBTQ youth in the foster care system and the role that we can and should continue to play in trying to alleviate some of these really troubling statistics. Anyway, it's, it's more than time to jump into our conversation with Chris from the Trevor Project, uh, and we'll get into all of this and much more. And more importantly, we'll talk about what we as a community can do about these uh, troubling numbers. Um, and just a bit more background on Chris before I turn it over to the conversation. Uh, as the director of public training at the Trevor Project, each year they oversee the training of hundreds of crisis counselors across the country, and they've helped dramatically expand this program at the Trevor Project. 
and more counselors mean more youth helped. Chris is also a foster parent, so they couldn't be a better person to talk to for this particular subject matter. Thank you again for tuning in. Um, If you've been enjoying the podcast, please do me a quick favor and like and subscribe wherever you're listening. And also leave us a quick review. This apparently matters. (laughs) Uh, So we'd really appreciate it. And as always, drop us a line at dadsatgayswithkids.com. Tell us how we're doing. Tell us what other subjects you want to hear on the podcast. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you. Enjoy the conversation. Chris Bright, welcome to the podcast. Hey there, thanks for having me. So I would be shocked if anyone listening to this in our audience of gay, bi, and trans dads and people that want to become dads um, or allies um, have never heard of the Trevor Project. (laughs) But just before we jump in, why don't we uh, just get a little bit of a background on the organization, its mission, um, and then also your particular role um, in the organization. Yeah, Uh, so the Trevor Project is the uh, world's largest suicide prevention and crisis intervention uh, resource for LGBTQ Uh, youth. (laughs) Uh, And so basically what that looks like here in the U.S. is that we have uh, 24-hour days, seven-day week, 365-day-a-year crisis intervention uh, services. Our lifeline, our chat, and our tech services uh, are all a space where a young person who's experiencing a crisis can go to connect one-on-one with a trained counselor who will support them. Um, So that's one of the sort of core things that we do here at Trevor. We also do research on uh, LGBTQ youth and their mental health. Uh, We advocate for laws and policies that support LGBTQ youth here in the US. Uh, And uh, I (laughs) am our director of public training. So I uh, am in charge of Trevor's public facing education initiatives. Um, And that's sort of the high level me. However, I have a bit of a personal uh, connection to this. I am a foster parent um, and have had several placements. Uh, I am also uh, a trans woman and sort of working towards what that looks like for myself. Um, So I'm really excited to be on this podcast. Topically speaking, uh, it holds a lot of interest for me and of course connected to the mission and the work that we do at Trevor. Uh, I think that uh, this topic is vital. Uh, We couldn't agree more. So we're, we're really excited to have you on as well. Um, so before we jump into some of the research and some of your work, I just want to play devil's advocate for just a second. So no one like hate DM me after I get into this because this isn't any way that I actually actually believe. But uh, you know, I was talking with some friends the other day about um, you know when I was coming out as a gay uh, boy in high school in like the late 1990s. Um, you know, we had in terms of role models out there, you know, like it was Ellen DeGeneres, and that was pretty much the um, that was pretty much it, right? So I'm looking around today, and we have. Lil Nas X um, is like, you know, the basically the biggest, you know, phenomenon in music right now. Uh, you know, young black uh, gay man. Uh, we have Jojo Siwa, who's basically like you know, this uh, YouTube personality and uh, young uh, woman who is uh, now like out and on reality shows and doing her thing. And neither of these people seem to be um, being impacted in the way that they would have been probably back when uh, I was coming up. And, you know, so I'm talking even to friends of mine that have kids in school, it's, you know, we're at a place now where, uh, at least here in New York City, I know this is definitely not true around the country, but where um, kids are being prompted um, to introduce themselves with their preferred gender pronoun. And this is, you know, these are 
um, things that uh, are just kind of unconceivable to me is, uh, you know, from when I was coming out. So, so I guess just before we get into everything that's going on today, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about just the, the progress we've made over uh, the last generation or so. Uh, and I think this is why it's uh, still probably shocking to a lot of people, just how many problems continue to exist. And your research really uncovers this. But despite the progress we've made, uh, we still have a long way to go. But let's just talk a little bit about uh, what you've seen in, in both your you know, personal or uh, professional capacity in terms of progress. Um, for uh, LGBTQ plus youth? Yeah, that's a really good uh, question. I think it's interesting because you're right that there are a lot more um, role models, people to look up to, folks within the sort of main cultural zeitgeist uh, that you can say, wow, I could see myself in that person. But if you look at that compared to cis and straight role models, it still pales in comparison. And it doesn't even mirror what, what we might think is the percentage of the population that identifies as LGBTQ. Um, and so that's a big concern. I also think that when you look at media representation, one of the biggest challenges, and I'm sure Ellen would have experienced this a ton in the 90s, is that when there are so few opportunities, every person who does celebrate their LGBTQ identity as part of their career, part of their uh, sort of public-facing identity um, is expected to represent all of our community or all possible uh, aspects of our community. And it sort of completely ignores the intersectional identities that we all hold that make us unique and make up who we are. And so you're right that there is so much um, in the way of better representation. But I'm out here being like, can we get some more? Can we get a little bit more? Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> uh, so that's sort of where my head has been. Um, but you did mention, you know, okay, so the suicide rates for the past 20 years have increased. Uh, the specific stat, I would say, is uh, I think it was from 1998 to 2018. Um, so that a 20-year period um, where the suicide rates uh, increased by 35%. Wow. I also know that suicide is the second leading cause of death for LGBTQ young people, uh, actually for all young people. <laughs> so that's an interesting stat that I think a lot right. of people are like, really? I wouldn't expect uh, the second leading cause of death to be something uh, as preventable as suicide. But what's really concerning is that when you zero in on LGBTQ youth, we find that LGBTQ youth are more than four times as likely to attempt suicide uh, as their cis and straight peers. Um, also, I will note that based on our own data uh, and research, we, we estimate that there's more than 1.8 million LGBTQ youth between the ages of 13 and 24 who seriously consider suicide each year in the US. Um, and that sort of one attempt every 45 seconds. <laughs> Uh, and so when you look at that, it's really like, whoa, what can we be doing? What do, how do we help uh, solve this problem? And, and what does that look like? It really is. It's, yeah, it's shocking that, you know, we've come so far yet still have so far to go. Um, and so what would you say has kind of been the main uh, difference in what in the Trevor Project and how it's focused is uh, the organization was founded in 1998, which was around the time that I was coming out. Um, what as a as a young person? So what what would you say is kind of the uh, given all of the trends you've just uh, listed um, is the main difference between the work back then versus today? Well, we've expanded uh, the modalities in in which someone can access services. So. When we started, you could only reach out to us via our lifeline, right? You could pick up the phone and call. Um, 
even back then, some people wouldn't have been comfortable picking up the phone and calling. But now, especially, a lot of young people are not interested in talking on the phone with their voice to another person. Right. But they're really interested in texting um, or logging onto our website and, and using a chat portal. Um, and so for a lot of folks, that is one of the ways that, that we have changed that has made us a lot more accessible is that people can text with a counselor or if, if maybe their phone is being monitored or they don't have access to text, they could you know, maybe log into uh, our chat portal and, and connect on our, on our website. So there are just more ways in which people can reach us. Um, and that matters a lot because 1.8 million is a large number. Uh, and if there are that many youth who seriously consider, LGBTQ youth who seriously consider suicide in the US, um, that means that we have a lot, a lot of work to do to support this community. We certainly do. In our listenership, or you know, again, gay, bi, and trans parents, or people that are uh, hope to become parents and allies, uh, we should be caring about the mental health of all LGBTQ youth and all youth generally, just uh, as a matter of you know principle. Um, but within the context of our community, it's a, a lot of one of our main paths to parenthood is through foster care, um, just uh, as you have uh, become. Um, and it's pretty shocking when you hear the statistics there, too. So I think looking into the foster care system, is, particularly among older youth, uh, it's pretty evident just how much further we still have to go in terms of um, addressing the mental health needs of young people. So uh, LGBTQ youth are like shockingly overrepresented um, in the foster care system because they continue to be kicked out of their homes, rejected by their families, all sorts of uh, things contribute to that. So this is a particular uh, segment of the community that's uh, of interest to our uh, listenership. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about LGBTQ youth specifically in foster care and some of the mental health struggles that you um, are aware of there and, and anything that Trevor Project um, is doing to kind of address those and anything that our listenership can also be doing to help. Yeah, so you're absolutely right that there is an overrepresentation of LGBTQ youth in foster care. It's difficult to study these things, but we think that there's probably a correlation here between youth who have been rejected by their families, and so uh, they experience, uh, you know, a need for foster care at a, at a higher rate. Um, that being said, um, <laughs> there's also probably an underrepresentation of LGBTQ folks uh, in the foster care system and on the other side of things, right? I, as a foster parent, um, really had to look far and wide to find an agency that I felt really comfortable working with um, to make sure that I would be supported uh, as, a, as a queer or trans person in, in the foster care uh, system. Um, because you know you want to be able to provide the best possible support for young folks and you definitely don't want to continue a cycle of rejection a cycle where folks feel like they are unloved or unwanted uh, and so i think uh, if anyone listening to this is interested in fostering or or looking into that um, i think there are a lot of um, increasing resources for our community to become more equipped to support um, all foster kids, but especially even foster kids who identify as LGBTQ. Absolutely. So uh, followers of this podcast will know we just had a, a, an episode with uh, Foster Club, which is an organization that works with LGBTQ foster youth um, who are currently in the system and have recently aged out and are you know fighting to make a difference there. So I'll direct people to definitely go check them out as well, um, as well as we have a whole um, section on our site, gayswithkids.com. 
uh, for people interested in becoming foster parents. We have like a, you know step-by-step instructionals and we're you know huge com- uh, fans of, of this path to parenthood and encourage uh, everyone that's interested to definitely look into it. Um, but we also say all the time that you know not all LGBTQ people, not all people are cut out to be a foster parent and that's also fine, but there's other ways to be supporting um, LGBTQ youth. Um, and, and I think one way in, uh, you know, especially people listening to this that have children, especially, you know, junior high, high school age children um, that may or may not identify as LGBTQ, it's still such an important thing to be working with them um, to be allies to um, not only, you know, the broader LGBTQ community, but also to their classmates and to be, uh, you know, I don't think it's a given that just because you're being raised by an LGBTQ person that you have the skills or capacity to uh, to know how to help or reach out to other youth maybe in your in your same uh, school that are that are struggling. And, and so I know that you are working on a workshop video series that's uh, peer-to-peer support that uh, is, is supposed to be kind of an intervention model for uh, for young people to be able to develop some of these skills. What can parents be doing to help their kids be better allies to uh, to other youth in the school system? Yeah. You know, what's interesting is that <laughs> Uh, from where I stand, and this might feel controversial to say, but I just think it's proven time and again, young people are a lot better at showing up for each other than adults are sometimes at showing up for young folks. And so um, a lot of folks will report rejection from their family, rejection from their teachers, school counselors, social workers, adults in their life. If we look at the laws and policies in this country that are being created, Many of the laws and policies that are being created uh, are specifically targeting our community in a discriminatory way. And of course, those are all being created by adults. Um, Those are all being created by people with a really aggressive agenda um, to sort of oppress a portion of the population. Um, And we're talking young people who are so... um, already put in a position where they don't have autonomy, where they don't get to choose things for themselves, where they have to fit into a really specific schedule and a really specific path. Uh, And so when I think about, well, what's one way that we could empower young people? I think it's empowering young people to support each other, empowering young people to show up for one another in ways that feel safe and affirming. Uh, And so on our website, we do have some resources Uh, We have sort of like a handbook for folks who are thinking about coming out, uh, sort of to think about what that process might be. And there's definitely some mental health tips in there. Uh, We're also looking into expanding uh, a virtual workshop for LGBTQ youth uh, and their allies and peers to better focus on supporting their own mental health and the mental health around them. So that's something that... uh, in the coming time would be available for folks to to view on our website. So there are definitely a lot of things that are in (laughs) the works, but from an education standpoint, I really wanna drive home the importance that adults just like stop. (laughs) Can we stop, take a breath (laughs) and then show up for these youth? Because uh, so much of the damaging and destructive things that are happening for this community or for LGBTQ youth at large are uh, specifically uh, wrought upon them by adults. <laughs> well, yeah, it's uh, very well said. So not everyone lives in New York like I like I do, and and you know hear the stories of of uh, friends of mine who have kids in the system here. Who you know it does sound far just light years ahead of where I was when I was younger. Obviously, plenty more to go. But so, uh, what would you say to um, a, da- a dad 
in like a different, less accepted. So I'm from Utah originally, uh, for instance. So like, uh, so a gay dad in Utah, we have a huge community of gay, bi, and trans uh, parents there. And, you know, maybe they're not working within such an accepting school system. So um, what are some things that um, adults can do, parents can do to try to be impacting things on a policy-wide level uh, in school systems, um, but also just individually, you know, with your specific teacher and your specific principal, like what kind of uh, tools or, or skills would you recommend implementing in that instance? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, I think advocating for and speaking up for folks who are often not empowered to speak up for themselves is an important piece here, especially when you look at things like school board meetings or uh, meetings in general that are centered around adults' opinions about LGBTQ youth. Uh, it's really important that um, allies and, and parents of LGBTQ uh, folks and non-LGBTQ folks <laughs> Uh, show up at those meetings and let their voice be heard because we don't want a situation where like a very vocal minority who is hateful towards our community is driving um, policies or changes that yeah, exactly. oppress our community. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I'm also, I'm from California, uh, Los Angeles area, you're in New York. <laughs> I think it's easy to think, well, if you're in a major metropolitan area, where there happen to be more resources for LGBTQ folks, that it's not a problem. But the truth is, um, you can find discrimination and bias oh, anywhere. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and so I think wherever you are listening from, think about, you know, asking those questions. What does my community do to support um, LGBTQ youth? What things are we doing to show that we support this population? Uh, because if we are, if we're reaching for a zero suicide, right, if we're saying we don't want any youth to die by suicide, um, but we know that there is one population that is at such an elevated risk, um, we have to not just passively <laughs> support LGBTQ youth, we have to proactively find ways to implement real lasting change that upholds and supports these identities. Yeah, absolutely. So going back um, a second to some of the very troubling statistics you were talking about earlier in the conversation. So uh, through your research at the Trevor Project, what are you finding are some of the contributing? I mean, why, why are we seeing this increase in suicide attempts in, in LGBTQ youth? And has have those factors been changing over the years? Or, or what, what do you see as some of the, the biggest contributing factors? And what, what can we be trying to do about them? It's interesting because it's, it's hard to pinpoint the exact reasons why? Because it's hard to ask someone, <laughs> why are you experiencing suicidal ideation? Uh, because oftentimes it's a myriad of things. And sometimes it has to do with societal systems of oppression that just create a world where this person doesn't feel loved, accepted, respected, cherished, <laughs> and all of those things uh, contribute to increased suicidal ideation. Uh, what we find, though, is that there are protective factors that are more easy to pinpoint. So for example, if you said, I'm going to be a supportive adult in an LGBTQ person's life, you can reduce that young person's risk for suicide attempts by 40%. <laughs> so one adult, I'm not talking about everyone in your community. I'm saying if you as a single person supported an LGBTQ young person and affirmed their identity wholeheartedly, you could reduce their risk for uh, attempting suicide by 40%. Wow. So 
it really does start with you. I'm not going to back off of the like, we need to make better policies. We need to do better as, as adults and all of that. But there are really tangible ways. I, you know, I think about like, <laughs> when I started coming out, um, there were people who responded with like, yes, that's amazing. I love that for you. Uh, I'm so excited. I can't wait to experience this with you. And then there were people who responded with like, okay, well, cool. Thanks for telling me. That's really nice. I'm glad that you trusted me. Thank you. Right, right. And you can feel the difference in oh, that, yeah, especially absolutely. a young yeah. person who's looking for joy and who's looking for excitement and celebration if they're met with even the most tepid response. And here's the thing. You may look back on that and be like, I said, okay, thank you for telling me. I'm glad that I, I want to support you. But the tone in which you said it, the level of joy that you contributed to those identities, all of that can impact the way that a person feels around you. And so, you know, I'm looking at ways, and this is something I, you know, I could talk about this particular topic for hours, but I'm looking for ways to elevate queer, trans, uh, LGBTQ joy. I'm looking for ways to talk about the thriving aspects of our community, because so often we really focus heavily on the problems. And listen, there are major problems. And I shared some statistics that are absolutely devastating. Um, and, and we really should be addressing those. But imagine being an LGBTQ youth where the only narrative you're hearing is like, life's going to be really hard. Mm. Uh, you're not going to have the support that you need. People are going to be mean. <laughs> um, when that is the narrative, we really do need to reframe that and reshape that because some of the happiest, most vibrant parts of my life take place through my queer identity, uh, take place through my trans identity. And that is something that we oftentimes brush aside because of the more urgent need to help end LGBTQ youth suicide. I could not agree more. That's incredibly well put. Um, it is very easy to focus on all the, the troubling statistics um, and everything, even, you know, the, the messaging around it gets better that, you know, that it's uh, it's not going to be good for you now. I think that there are ways, uh, small and big, that it, it can be a joyful experience for a lot of LGBTQ youth. Not everyone. Again, there are troubling statistics out there, but I, I think, yeah, that message is incredibly important. And coming from, like, you know, when I uh, was coming out, I had mentors, older um, gay men in my life who were able to give me that message. Exactly. I was lucky that I had incredibly supportive parents. So I, uh, I got that from them too, but it is different from um, the voice of an LGBTQ plus person. You know, I, I think within the foster care system, it's actually remarkably easy. So again, you might not be able to be a foster parent yourself, but, um, but there are mentorship opportunities. You, you can get in touch with any local foster care agency. There are some great ones all across the country that can connect you to really helpful, uh, amazing mentorship opportunities, which can take, you know, as much time as you have to give. Um, and can make, you know, that I hadn't heard that statistic before, but 40%, um, you know, uh, reduced in um, uh, suicide attempts is, uh, you know, is incredible statistic and one that I think uh, really kind of bodes well for, for us really getting involved, no matter, you know, if you're a parent yet or not. Uh, but so what are some other ways that you would suggest that people could reach out to LGBTQ youth who might be in uh, the households that are less supportive or uh, maybe in super rural areas where they don't have like a great connection to the broader community. How can we um, find these youth and, and be that role model? Yeah. Well, if you're a parent and you have, you know, kids in your life, they're going to have friends. <laughs> 
And those friends may hang out at your house. They may be in your, in your space and in your community. And so even extending that warmth and that love and that uh, embracing sort of uh, <laughs> benevolence uh, is one thing that you can do just for every youth in your life. Don't just zero in on your own kids because there are a lot more <laughs> people in the world and a lot more young people around you than you think probably. Um, and certainly they will see that, they will respect you, they will come to uh, view you as a safe person. Um, we already talked about finding places where policies are being made, <laughs> um, but there are also, you know, you can make your voice heard in a voting booth, <laughs> you can uh, support laws and policies that are affirming to LGBTQ folks in your community, you can sort of weigh through some of the more nefarious things that exist right now. For example, conversion therapy, uh, which is a debunked uh, practice. I hate even using the term therapy because it's not a therapeutic right. approach. Yeah. Um, but um, things like conversion therapy, which is illegal in a lot of states, but it's not illegal at the federal level. Uh, and I'm someone who experienced this at a very young age. And I can say that... that um, the idea that we should be teaching young people really negative things about their own identities and uh, causing them to fear who they are um, are all areas that you as an adult can say, not on my watch. I am not going to do that. <laughs> and I'm not going to allow that to stand. Um, so anyway, I bring up those things because I think a lot of times we focus on what's happening at the national stage. But you can actually look in your own community find opportunities in your own space, small and large, to impact change for this population. So one other um, component of all this for our audience in particular, for gay, bi and trans dads, is, you know, I, I think even in the most supportive of instances, um, a lot of our children will, you know, have a range of negative experiences as the children of LGBTQ parents, right? So they are, they're going to get questions in grade school and, you know, from the time they're very young on up. Um, and, uh, and a lot of them experience bullying because of it. Um, and, you know, parents themselves can have a hard time in a lot of these schools. So um, what would you say um, to the parents out there that are struggling with that with their own children who are coming home, you know, wondering why they're different and um, and wondering what they can do about it. What can parents be saying to their children um, and doing about this um, to try to reduce the bullying of the youth of LGBTQ parents? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think um, it is absolutely true that <laughs> we have a duty to protect uh, youth who are being bullied, youth who are being um, treated differently because of their identity. I think um, we as a society need to get away from putting the onus on marginalized identities as the ones who should do their own protecting. However, it's weird when you look at it from the perspective of I as a parent am also part of a marginalized community. <laughs> I as a parent am also experiencing bias and prejudice based on my identity, right? Maybe I'm not getting invited to the parent meetings. Maybe I'm not being welcome in certain spaces, or maybe I'm being told like, you can bring cupcakes, but please don't do anything else, right? And it's like, huh, okay, am I being, am I, am I being kicked <laughs> out of this? Like what's happening? Yeah. Um, and so those are all really um, intense pressures to be put on, um, you know, 
a parent. Um, and, and I do want to sort of point out that for, for our community, uh, there's a lot of breaking of traditional uh, family models that happens from the time we're really young, right? Where chosen family is such a vital part of our community. Um, the, the idea that sometimes our biological family does not show up for us <laughs> uh, and we have to create chosen family and spaces that are just as important as biological family. And so I spend a lot of time focusing on chosen family because I think that that model fits well with foster care, with surrogacy, with adoption, with all of the pathways that we move towards parenting within our community. And so I just want to acknowledge that to choose someone and to call them family is easily one of the most beautiful things that we can do. And it should be celebrated and it should be validated in the exact same way. Um, and right now that means reducing stigma for our community because there is too much stigma right now around what it means to be a queer parent. Absolutely. Um, and so now we haven't even touched on your own journey to parenthood. So I'd love to hear about uh, what what was the impetus for you to, um, I mean, I, I can hazard a guess, <laughs> uh, but to start looking into foster um, care as a, as a path to parenthood for yourself. Yeah, well, my husband and I, were, we are not able to have biological children. And honestly, I think even if we were able to, um, there is such a great need <laughs> for parents in the world that I think we probably would have chosen the path we chose regardless. Um, but we've been really cautious because um, the foster care system is not free from systems of oppression. Racism plays a huge factor in the foster care system in America. There is a huge uh, bias against people of color in the foster care system. Um, there is also a lot of, um, you know, <laughs> for lack of a better word, um, bias. I might even just outright say prejudice that exists around um, poverty, around not being able to afford certain things. Um, and we've literally created a, a society where for some folks, being a parent and taking care of their uh, kids is not affordable. It's not something that they can do. And so the foster care system through that lens means that for us, reunification is really important, making sure that the kiddos in our care have access to um, their family, um, their biological family is important to us. However, we also are willing to adopt, we're willing to do whatever we need to do. And so I would say for us, our journey was a lot about <laughs> uh, lack of control, about embracing <laughs> the fact that we don't get to choose very much in this. Um, and because of that, we've had to take breaks, you know, like maybe one of our foster kids goes uh, to, to live with their, their biological parents and we say, okay, we're gonna take a break now um, to support our own mental health and make sure that our cup is full enough to support others. But my only caveat with foster care for everyone is really understand that the point of the foster care system is reunification, it is supporting families, it is making sure that folks have the opportunity um, to care for their children. Um, and so if you approach it through that lens, I think foster care may be a great path for you, um, but it's not for everybody. So I just want to say my journey might not look like your journey. Yep, absolutely. And we, 
we um, say the same thing at Gates with Kids all the time. It is really important to enter um, this pathway with that knowledge that reunification is the goal. Uh, but if your ultimate goal is to adopt, you know, it will definitely happen eventually through the foster care system. Um, it is a beautiful way to, uh, to get involved. So for anyone that might be listening, that's kind of wondering, I'm hoping we're not scaring everyone off. Because <laughs> again, you know, we can go into, we can get such heavy, and I'm really happy that you brought up the concept of joy of being queer. I think the same thing exists, the joy of being a queer parent, dis, uh, despite all of the uh, trials and tribulations and, and barriers and things that exist. Um, you know, I think it's a, it's enough that it can scare a lot of people off um, from ever attempting it because it's a, it's a big journey to, to undertake. And we do face barriers that, that cis um, straight people just don't. Uh, anything in particular about being a queer and transparent that is worth noting uh, within the foster care system. And then just anything you would tell anyone that's kind of wavering on the issue. <laughs> yeah, so I don't want to scare people off. I want people to have their expectations managed because uh, you don't want to get into a situation where you didn't know what you what you were maybe expecting. And it's a very unpredictable thing. You have no idea what's actually going to happen. So you should be expecting everything. Um, but that being said, <laughs> I have literally found the happiest moments of my life, um, like top five, like core memory making moments, right, uh, in my life through fostering. And so I, I want to acknowledge that um, showing up and helping a, a young person thrive is so rewarding because it lives so far beyond you and your own sort of bubble uh, and it will have impacts uh, on their life for the rest of their life. Um, and so I do want to sort of celebrate that I do kind of feel like LGBTQ folks are specially equipped for this kind of parenting. We are like specially equipped for this kind of uncertainty because we've grown up in a society that has marginalized us, that has cast us aside. We've experienced rejection from family and friends sometimes. And so we know what that feels like. We also know what it feels like to make a family. We know what it feels like to build love that is unconditional and to celebrate people for who they are, to celebrate the differences that we have because what makes us different makes us strong. Um, and when we look at that, I find that, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not out here saying it's for everyone, but I'm like, it's for most people, right? We should all do this, right? Uh, <laughs> because I just love... The, it has brought so much beauty into my life, I will say, um, and so much joy into my life. Same, and I, you know, I think the same would go for just parenthood. Generally, for LGBTQ people, it is it's something that a lot of us didn't think would ever be possible for us when we were younger. Uh, partly for a lot of the reasons we've talked about here today, uh, but it is increasingly becoming an option, even though it's a it's a more difficult one. I'll also add to that. It's a, you know, I, I often say, you know, whoops is not a, a word that you hear ever in a LGBTQ family creation story, right? Mm -hmm. Like we go into this <laughs> very intentionally, unlike again a lot of our straight and cis uh, brothers and sisters. Um, we have to plan for years for our past to parent, and we have to go through, you know, incredible um, barriers, financial and otherwise emotional. Um, you know, parenthood is difficult in the best of scenarios, but like anyone that is questioning a LGBTQ person's rights or uh, ability to be a parent should look at, <laughs> should try what we have to go through to become parents, and then they'll understand that this is something we actually want. We are, we're in this for the right reasons. So uh, so just before we, we wrap, I want to, I, I know you, you all do a ton of great research, and we barely even touched on some of it, but I just want to talk about um, anything else that's kind of bubbling up a Trevor project that you definitely want people to uh, to know about, any other uh, interesting research or trends, um, and, uh, and then just let people know um, other ways that they can get involved and support your work. 
Yeah, so because I know that it's on a lot of folks' minds, I want to talk a little bit about our most recent national surveys findings as it relates to the pandemic, to COVID, um, because uh, there's a very specific impact on youth, um, and, and there's some data that we that we got from our most recent national survey that, that I want to highlight. So 70% of all LGBTQ youth stated that their mental health was poor most of the time or always during um, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, in that year, at least, right? Um, and so we can extrapolate that things might be changing now that young folks are getting back to school, now that the vaccine is more widely available for younger folks. Um, but when you look at something like a pandemic that removes a young person from probably a lot of their support system and a lot of what was really uh, giving them uh, <laughs> vibrance and connectivity to other people, that's something that we would say um, we need to find better systems where young people can find that type of support at home if they ever do need to be pulled from their support systems for any reason, right? Uh, we also found that more than 80% of LGBTQ youth stated that COVID-19 made their living situation more stressful. So we should be working together to find ways to de-stress uh, to whatever extent possible uh, the new sort of normal that we are finding around the pandemic. So those are some things I wanted to highlight because I know it's something that um, has been on all of our minds for the past, uh, what is it, almost two years now. Um, and so <laughs> just want to throw that out. No, there. that's a good point. We didn't even touch on COVID, which obviously is a pressure on all of us. But again, for in addition to all the other things that LGBTQ youth are facing and parents. Um, yes, a, a very good uh, uh, closing note. <laughs> um, yeah. And people can find all this research, I assume, on your website. On our website, yeah. You can uh, just search the 2021 National Survey. We're already hard at work on the 2022 National Survey. Uh, so look out for that. But, um, you know, the 2021 National Survey had over 35,000 respondents, largest study of its kind. So just flagging for you that there are um, a lot of, of data points we didn't get to touch on today. I encourage you to head over to our website and learn more about that. We will echo that. Um, Chris Bright, thank you so much for being here. Chris is the Director of Public Training at the Trevor Project. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Um, and here's to, you know, great work that you're all doing. We're huge supporters at Gays with Kids um, and look forward to, uh, to read more of your research. <laughs>